the introductions are wonderful. The music is exquisite, isn't it? I'm telling the music here is just phenomenal. Uh, but above all, it's wonderful to be with a community of learners. Isn't that what Reverend Biggs has helped create here over these years? A sacred community of learners. And that really is what a church or synagogue ought to be. We are all the people of the book. Do not forget that. And being people of the book, we really need to know the book. So I'm going to start tonight. I, I could go on. I'm going to miss all of you so very, very much. Uh, so, But I do want you to know that we're going to have some fun tonight, too. But tonight we're going to be speaking about a person who plays a preeminent role in the text. Uh, his name is Moses. By the way, what language is Moses from? Pretty close. Pretty, pretty close. That's good. That's good. What language is it? What language is it? It's Egyptian. It's Egyptian. It's not Hebrew. Name's not originally a Hebrew name. And you know that from kings like... There is the name. Tutmose and others. M-O-S-E is an Egyptian name. It's not Hebrew. But it came into Hebrew. But I just, just want you to know that. We're going to be speaking about Moses a lot. Let me see if I can use something a little clearer for you to see. Ah, there we go. All right. Mose, which you can, if you watch the Discover Channel or other so-called historical channels, you can uh, get some sense of that. All right? Now, tonight we're going to be learning lots of things together. And there's no way I can cover Moses' life with you and his teachings and other things in one shot. But we're going to be talking about what I hope are very important elements in it. So the first thing we're going to learn is, what language is that? No, it is not. That is a mistake by the writers of the King James Bible. It's a mistake, and I will show you when we get to that passage. You don't have to change your music, but it's not the name. You're going to hear the name tonight, and I'll show you how the mistake occurred. That's number one. Number two, what do the Hebrews do for 40 years in the wilderness? No, they didn't. Sorry, and I'm going to show you that as well. In fact, the five books don't cover the 40 years. The Torah, that's what we give as the very technical name of the five books, is silent for 38 years in the wilderness. Never knew that, did you? Remember I said, you got to struggle with that text. You've got to let the divine text reach deep into your souls. They did not. They were in the wilderness 40 years, but didn't wander. They were camped for 38 and a half years at a site called Kadesh Barnea, which is right on the border between Egypt and the state of Israel today. That's how close they were to the land of promise. 
Can you imagine spending those years? We'll find out why if you don't know it already. So we're going to deal with the 40 years as well if we can. And what it what the silence means, which is very strange, that silence. So let's keep some of this in mind as we go along. Last question, those of you who are scholars of Charlton Heston's performance <laughs> in Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments. When the Ten Commandments were given, where was Charlton Heston? No, that's another issue. That's good. See? See that? There you go. All right. I know. I got it. What do we call that? That's the stuff, right? We got it. I got it. It's good. It's good. It's good. Where was he? Up on the mountain. Questionable. From the text. And I'll show you where. We really don't know where he was. He could have been up there. He could have been down with the people. We're going to talk about it and see it. Just little facts on the side, because I want you to be open to the story. What's going on here? And why, when I met with your wonderful staff today, your, you know, the ministry that has developed here under the mentoring and loving guidance of your wonderful, wonderful minister. We were talking and going back and forth about things and why they were the case. And the question is, how does one live with a text? How does one go back to a text? I have some five and six-year-olds who go home to their parents after religious school and say, I'm bored. It's the same stories all over again. But it's a living story. Because we change and we grow, the story changes in our dialogue, our existential relationship with the text itself. And that's why living texts, living scripture, continues to inform and bless us. The stories are never old. And I feel sorry for five and six-year-old kids who are bored because they cannot see and they cannot hear beyond the simple narrative line. Okay, so we're going to get started. One of the interesting things about Moses is he is really one of the first people in the text who was born homeless and dies homeless. When we try to take care of homeless people and sometimes I hear uh, people talking about, well, you know, they're, why can't they find a place to live? Why can't they feed themselves? Um, must be something wrong. And I have to remind people I care about very much that Moshe, that's the name in Hebrew for Moses, was born homeless and he dies homeless. He is almost a tragic figure. And we really need to try to understand what it, might, what it must have been like to lead a people from slavery to freedom 
to go from being raised in a palace where your only competition was Yule Brynner. <laughs> I want you to visualize that, you understand? <laughs> and to then die with the land of promise right there. And you know you cannot enter. Wow. What must that have been like? What was it like to be called on a mission you did not want to undertake? Moses never says, here I am, by the way. Doesn't. He argues with God. He says, well, you know, God... The, the, who's, who's sending me? Who are you after all? You're sending me back. They're not going to listen to me. And then I have trouble speaking. I didn't pass Dr. Biggs' homiletics course. <laughs> I'm, I have trouble in that whole area. What, 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 what's, what's this about? What is it to serve your life on a mission where you fail to take them into the land of promise. Martin Luther King Jr. understood that, didn't he, in one of his last speeches. He said, I've been to the mountaintop, and I may not go in there with you. Clearly, Moses, what did it feel like? And what did it feel like to have to be a leader of a group of cantankerous Jews. Now, I can relate to that story. <laughs> you know, one of the clear statements here, very important statements to remember in all of this, it is far easier to take the ancient Hebrews out of Egypt than it is to take Egypt out of the ancient Jews. Far easier. And it's true with every period of slaves and of those who are oppressed. It's far easier to get them to a place where they may enjoy freedom. It is much harder to remove the history, the sensitivities, the scars of slavery. It takes much longer. Taking them across the sea didn't solve any of those issues and those problems. Moses was confronted with rebellion from the time he started to his dying day. And it was only then that he was truly missed by the people. So let's start. Who are the heroes of the story, by the way, in the early days of Moses? Do you know? Who are the heroes? That early story. The little baby born in Egypt. Women. Which women? Mother was one. Good. Very, very, very good. All right. Sister, Miriam, was another. By the way, they're not named in the first part of Exodus. They're not named till a few chapters later. So it's the unknown mother. It's the unknown sister. Pharaoh's daughter. Boy, have we forgotten about Pharaoh's daughter. Now, she knew what her father had said. 
kill all the Hebrews, kids, the males. And she was wandering there in the Nile, bathing, and she sees a baby in a basket. She knows it's a Hebrew child. And she knows what her father said, which is, kill him. But what did she do? She brought him into the palace and adopted him as her own. Text is very clear. I'm not going to make you look at it now. But the text is very clear. The daughter of Pharaoh is a hero. I know that heroine's not in any longer now. The hero of all of us. Do you understand there would have been no Christianity if Moses had died? I want you to think about it. If there had been no Hebrew scripture, there would have been no Jesus. And we'd be sitting in some other kind of wonderful building tonight. So this is a woman who's a hero, but so little has been written about her. So little has been expressed about this woman who, for whatever reason of her own, could not kill the child. And took the child into her home, her father's palace, and helped raise him as an Egyptian. Remember when he flees Egypt and goes to Midian, Jethro's daughter, Tsipporah, says, there's an Egyptian at the well. So he certainly could pass as an Egyptian. And he was raised as an Egyptian. But there are two other heroes. There, All the women are the heroes in that part of the story, and that story hasn't been told. The heroes of the first chapter of Exodus and the second chapter are all women. The midwives to the Hebrews, who wouldn't follow Pharaoh's command, Shifra and Puah, not names you use too much today. And they concocted some story about why they were not able to fulfill Pharaoh's command to kill. All women. Boy, do we have a story to tell our daughters and granddaughters, don't we? All of this, our religious traditions, Sinai and the commandments, God's call for a holy community and a sacred people which the church helps define itself as and as the Jewish people helps define itself as. We are both holy communities. Is a call that comes from the fact that there was a Moses around to lead the people out of Egypt and bring them to a holy mountain where a sacred covenant could be entered into between God and those who were ready to believe in the one God. Remember the women. Remember your mothers and grandmothers and those who have kept the faith over generations starting as far back as these extraordinary women at the beginning of the book of Exodus except for Shifra and Puah. And later we find out who Moses' mother was and Miriam's name, but unnamed heroes who helped make us us. 
an important lesson to learn. Now, when Moses gets to the bush, remember, he, he what, what did he do in Egypt that made him run? He killed an Egyptian. Very important to remember that, by the way. Because the rabbis hold him responsible for killing the Egyptian. It's interesting. When the rabbis create a whole book called The Death of Moses, it's a midrash. A midrash is a rabbinic expository text. And it's, it's not a short book. It's a book of many interpretations of what happened. Why didn't he go into the promised land? And, you know, the rabbi said, don't take that. I mean, the story that he hit the rock and uh, instead of talking to the rock, come on, for that you don't lose a chance to go into the promised land. What kind of story is that? And they picture God arguing and Moses arguing at the end of Moses' life. And, and God said, well, Adam had to die. So Moses says, well, I'll tell you what he did. And then the, the story goes on, and, and Isaac had to die. Well, I'll tell you some of the problems with Isaac, Moses said. And he went through all the names in this wonderful, mythical dialogue between God and Moses. And at the end, Moses has won every point. And God turns to Moses and says, according to rabbinic tradition, and who told you to kill the Egyptian? Isn't that amazing? that this rabbinic tradition would hold Moses responsible for killing an oppressive person, saying, you could have hit him in the head and just knocked him out. You didn't have to kill him. Mercy even in the face of oppression. So that was the reason they thought. But you remember, so he flees from Egypt, he comes to Midian, he's taken in by Jethro and Jethro's daughters who all fall in love with him. Mary's Zipporah. And then one day he's out there and he sees a bush that's burning and is not consumed. And all of a sudden, he hears a commanding voice calling him to go back to Egypt. And this God reveals a new name. So let's get to this. This God says, my name is... I'll do it in Hebrew first. Remember, Hebrew goes from right to left, okay? Now, it's pronounced... This is an H. This is a Y. And that's an H. Now we're reading English, right? So we're going left to right. All right? And the vowel here is an E. And the vowel here is supposed to be an E. It comes from the root hayah, to be. God is a verb, by the way, in Hebrew. God is not a noun. That is a verb. I shall be. I shall become. Far more in line with process than with the Greek being qua being that the Catholic philosophers talked about. Far more, I shall become what I shall become. It's an, a verb that is active. It is a verb which points to the future. And it is a verb of redemption. 
The glory of what is revealed to Moses at this moment on the mount where he meets that burning bush is that the new idea of God that would come now through Scripture will be a God who redeems and saves. Not a God of war, though gods do war. There are pictures of God as a warrior. Not a God simply protecting the Jews because the stories are universal stories. Adam is not Jewish, Eve's not Jewish, Noah's not Jewish. That's the primary covenant between God and all humankind. That's what our Holy Writ tells us. But again, Christianity and Judaism are based on a new idea of a God that redeems, a God that saves. That's what this name is about. And God's name is Eheyeh, I shall become, or I shall be. Active in history, bringing meaning to history, and meanings to meaning to people oppressed, oppressed in history. This is not a God who sits there waiting for just sacrifices to be offered on an altar. This is not a God who is capricious and arbitrary as the Greek gods were sitting on Mount Olympus and moving the chess pieces around in people and people's lives. This is a God who's an active, redemptive God. And that's why they have to be in Egypt, the Jewish people. And that's why we have to be redeemed from Egypt under God's protection. And that's what Paschal means in Hebrew. Pesach means protective sacrifice, to give protection. But what happened to this, so we'll get over to this right now, okay, is that eventually, since it's in the third person... Okay, I picked up the wrong one again. Okay, here we go. Sorry, sorry. Let me just put it over underneath the eraser so I won't pick it up again, all right? I need whatever help I can get. Here it is, all right? Namely, H-Y-O-R-W-H. can be either. Some like to see this as a kind of W sound. And the verb is he, excuse the non-gender sensitivity, will become. And to do that, you put a Y in front. Now, somehow, we don't know how that's vocalized. We think, some people think it's Yahweh. Okay? On the breath. Yah is breath. This is the God of life. This is the God of breath. Yah. Yah. So it's something to do with being and breathing. That's what it's all about. Now, so they would write it this way. And in order to not permit you to read that, because that's God's name and you don't play games with God's name, right? They put the vowels of another name. Underneath that, in fact, those vowels are on that wonderful mosaic outside. Those vowels are this 
this, and this was probably seen as a V or W, this, yeah, ho, va. But they don't want you to read that. That was put in to make you read Adonai. And that's what you got. And some guy was reading it one day and said, Aha, that's God's name. Yehovah. Mistake. <laughs> Don't tell any Jehovah's Witnesses I said that. <laughs> All right. But they got the wrong name. But that was the name. And this is the God of redemption. And I'm going to take you out of Egypt. In this extraordinary redemptive story, through the plagues of ancient Egypt. Now, for a moment, I know some people are very bothered by those plagues, but it's really a kind of dramatic presentation between God and the deities of ancient Egypt. The sun, the land that was owned by the priests, the Nile, all the gods of ancient Egypt were attacked in this mighty war between God and the deities of Egypt. And the firstborn belonged to the gods in the ancient world. So the terrible final plague of the death of the firstborn, that's what was done in Canaan. They used to offer the firstborn where? Do you know where? Where were the firstborn offered? in Canaan, under the Canaanite deity worship. They were offered in a little place near Jerusalem, was a valley. Hebrew word for valley is gay. Right? And this was a valley owned by a guy named Hinnom. From which we get... Right? Gehenna, the word for hell. Because the ancient prophets were so sickened by these sacrifices of children to their gods, which was the practice in the ancient world. Remember Spartacus? Sparta and all of that stuff? That they called, that when they could imagine the very worst that would be, it would be the burning fire and stench of Gehenna. If you have been in Jerusalem and you're near the Temple Mount, it would be behind you by about a mile and a half. It's where it is. It's still there today. And that's where they did their sacrifices. And so that's what the Ten Plagues were, this extraordinary movement by the God of redemption and salvation so that Egypt with its deities and all the mythos of those deities and the sun and and the land and the Nile, nothing can stand in the face of the redemptive, salvific God in the world. Nothing. There's no force greater. You can have Egypt had the greatest armies. Egypt then had the greatest might. Egypt was a great empire and civilization. But in the face of the call for freedom for all, and justice for all, and redemption for all, and salvation for all, nothing could stand in the face of this God who now enters history to bring a slave people 
We're not sure they were necessarily slaves. They might have been day laborers. It's not clear. But to bring them out of Egypt in this move that changes history. You understand that, don't you? Had there been no such moment, the African-American community could not have found a narrative in biblical text which have spoken about slaves becoming free. That's the. Do you know another story of freedom by deities? Do you have any any other in the ancient Near Eastern literature of a story which says people ought to be free? Justice means freedom. Justice means an end of oppression. That monarchies and empires that are based on oppression must end. Must end. So that a new day and a new place and a new time can come for all humankind. All humankind. And this is Moses' task, to take this group of motley slaves. Talk about leading those who aren't kind to you. Who really had... I mean, you look, They say to Moses, the day after they get out of the sea, crossing the sea, they say to Moses, you know, we're hungry. Why did you take us away from the good food of Egypt? from the fruit and the pay, all the fruit of Egypt and the bread to bring us to a wilderness. That's what I mean by it. it's easier to take the Jews out of Egypt than to take Egypt out of the Jews. And they were in rebellion from that. They were thirsty. And then they didn't have enough meat to eat. Right? You can see why deli sandwiches in kosher delis are so large. We've been trying to fight starvation ever since. But it's an extraordinary story. That's why the Catskills was renowned for food. Yeah, good entertainment at night. But the borscht belt? They even call it borscht. If you don't know what borscht is, I'm not going into Jewish ethnic uh, culinary arts tonight. But the whole idea was... You have to be free, but the people don't want to be free. They rebe- there are so many rebellions in the Bible, it reads like the minutes of my board of trustees meeting back in East Hampton. There wasn't a year without it, of the years we know about in the text. There wasn't a year without it. Now, let's keep on going, all right? The first Passover was there as well, and then I had a vigil, but I'm not going to go into that. Who was the hero of the crossing of the sea? Moses, in a way, he put out the staff, and Universal Studios got a wonderful ride for the Universal Park in, uh, in uh, Florida, right? Okay. But who leads the women in dance? Mary takes timbrels in her hands, and she just uses one verse there. And she they danced all night. I, I'm, I'm going to make a statement. I don't know if you dance here ever in a ritual way. But the Hebrew word chag, which means holiday, is associated in its origin with dance. That physically, we get very stiff 
I'm not suggesting Methodists are stiff. I can tell you about some church groups that are very stiff. But we've lost the capacity to express part of our ritual in dance form. I'm not not suggesting anything for here. But there is this great song that Debbie Friedman wrote when the Miriam and the women danced. And they, they all get up. They won't let us dance with them and dance around with the wonderful, wonderful timbrels and symbols and other things that to express joyous, wonderful brotherhood and sisterhood. And that's why that sculpture which this church put up in your honor and which you chose, they're dancing. They're dancing. I want you to know that. They're dancing. Because that's freedom, isn't it? We sit here like this. You know, and Jews are a stiff-necked people, right? Have you ever been in a synagogue? <laughs> kind of an arthritic, religious arthritic condition. I sit there. How do you talk to people who are all day and all night? Sometimes it's just good to get up and say, Thank you, God. Hallelujah. Praise Yah. God's name. Yah. Breath. The breath of life. God breathes breath into us. Thank God for that breath of life. That's what I wanted to do yesterday, but I know I'd interrupt everything during services. The music was so wonderful. Like, Tonight, I just wanted to say, praise God. Uplifted. How beautiful. Your choir and your musicians are just fantastic. Almost as good as your senior minister. I want you to understand we have bodies and this is what Miriam does she leads the women in praise of God in praise of God let's go to the mountain because I've got to cover a lot of stuff tomorrow I'm going to talk about the first set of commandments and the second set of commandments I want to go to the mountain first of all Moses was a typical leader Right. I'll, I'll go after synagogue leadership and you can make whatever analogies you want right? sometimes we men get so busy with our stuff who gets left out hmm? family Moses did it Moses did it the text is is, you know when sometimes you've got to listen? Where's my Boeing Theory man? Is he here tonight? Tom's here? Where's Tom? It's hard to see with those lights, right? Okay. All right. You didn't want to come too close tonight. I know that. I know that. And he's such a good sport. What a wonderful... And tonight he can hear me because I'm yelling. 
No, he's such a good sport. Thank you, Tom, really. Couldn't have done it without you last night. Really, thank you very much. I'm serious. Thank you. Um, when you read the text, you've got to say, what's going on here? I'm going to go, this time I want you to go to your text, all right? Because I want you to read something. I don't know if you've ever read the story of the giving of the Ten Commandments of Sinai. But I want you to see an interesting thing that happens before Sinai. The text is going to say something very interesting to us, okay? So let's go to Exodus chapter 18. I won't tell you where it is. I can hardly find it myself. I don't know. I bought this little book, right? So that I wouldn't have to carry a heavy book. I can't read a word. (laughs) All right. So here we go. Exodus 18. Now listen to the words. Jethro, priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for the, in Egypt, for Moses and for, the, for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Zipporah, Moses' wife, and his children, who had been sent home. Did we ever see, did the text ever say she was sent home with the kids? No. We know she went to Egypt with him. Text never says, like scenes from a marriage. There was once a movie called Scenes from a Marriage. It's like we get these little scenes. And what did he do? He brought them to Moses at the base of Mount Sinai. Now, this is not even funny for me. First of all, because I feel terribly guilty. Because I think of all the times of my life that I got so busy with synagogue business, supposedly doing God's work, that my family didn't go along, or they didn't participate. Or I was so tense around the high holy days that, God forbid, a kid should look at me with one eye like this and one eye like that. And that was the end of the holiday. Now, that would never happen in his home, right? Never. Because he's good, but he's, you'd understand that, right? You know. Wow. But the, he, Moses sent Sipporah back. That makes sense. He was probably worried about what was going on in Egypt. He said, I'm getting out of the war zone. But that he was already at Sinai and that there's no evidence that he sent for his family. It's one problem that they missed the redemption from Egypt, that they would have missed the giving of the commandments. Wow. So who brings her Jethro? Also not Jewish. Remember, Zipporah marries Moses. She becomes a part of the Jewish people. But Jethro's not Jewish. And he becomes Moses' management consultant. Obviously had an MBA from Harvard of uh, Saudi Arabia or somewhere like that, southern part of the Negev, wherever he was. And he was the consultant telling him, you can't lead like it. You've got to divide it up and delegate authority. It's a great leadership text, by the way. Great leadership text. So Moses is pictured very humanly here. 
He gets angry. He gets upset. He's not attentive to his family or to his sons. He's very human. One of the great things about Moses is he is mortal. The greatest Jewish leader of the Torah will someday die. And that mortality is an indication that all the heroes of the first of the Jewish biblical texts are all men and women with lots of weaknesses and lots of failures who somehow, and we're going to talk about this tomorrow night, are able sometimes to pick themselves up and aim higher. But they're all human. Not one is superhuman. Not one is beyond. So he made a lot of mistakes. And he faced a complaining people. Now the question is, where was he when the Ten Commandments were given? You ready for that one? Since I've already showed you this is an error. All right? But don't change the language in the hymns. The hymns are too beautiful. This we're going to get to in a minute. This we've talked about. Let's, how many times he was... Where was he when he went up on the mountain? Are we, stay with me. If, you're, if you've opened the book, take a look at the 19th chapter of Exodus. All right? So on the third new moon after the Israelites had gone forth from the land of Egypt on that very day... All right, when does... Uh, Pentecost take place? When? Let's see. Let's, let's see. I'm, I'm checking out your uh, uh, Christian IQ. All right, here we go. When does Pentecost come? How many? 50 days after Easter. All right. Easter takes place, as Passover does, in the first month of the year because they were shepherd calendars. And the year started when the flocks were giving birth in the springtime. You know, it's the springtime of the year. That was the beginning of the year. Third month would be when Pentecost happens. Hebrew month of Sivan, the third month of the year. Pentecost is built upon the calendar of Sinai. It replicates in part only. It goes beyond that. But it replicates in that this part only the revelation on Sinai. And I know you will go into it on your own when something happens with the disciples and all of that, and I'll leave that to those who really know it. I'm not walking into that area today. But I do want you to know it's based on this calendar. So when they say the third month here, your mind should go, where's Tom? Boing, good, all right. There, third month, hey, that's when Pentecost takes place. Third month of the year, the original year. Okay. Right, so here we go. And what happens? So in that third month, after the people had gone from the land forth from the land of Egypt, the Israelites, that very day they entered the wilderness of Sinai. Having journeyed from Rephidim, they entered the wilderness of Sinai and encamped in the wilderness before right at the very front, the bottom of the mountain. And Moses went up to God. 
Already he's going up. Not for the Ten Commandments yet. That's the first time he goes up the mount. Okay? God calls him from the mountain saying, This is what you shall say to the house of Jacob and declare to the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings. When the Yemenite Jews were brought in the 50s from Yemen to Israel, they were coming out of the Stone Age in a sense, in terms of technology. And these old DC-3s, remember the DC-3s? were transporting them to Israel, and they thought they were eagles' wings. In fact, there are stories about how they started to cook dinner in the plane, <laughs> on a fire right in the plane. It's a true story, by the way. You have seen what I did, how I bore you on eagle wings and brought you to me. Now, if you'll obey me and faithfully keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. Indeed, all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Isn't that what we're about, all of us, Christians and Jews? becoming kingdoms of priests and holy nations. Notice a democratization of the priesthood is already envisaged. That each of us is a priest. Each of us can pray. And a holy people. That's what we're, we're talking about. The church sees itself as the renewed people Israel. Now, so he went up for this. So then... He says, these are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So Moses came and he summoned the board, says the elders of the people. It doesn't mean old people, it means the leadership. And put before them everything God had said. And all the people answered in one, as one saying, all that the God has spoken we will do. Then Moses goes back up the mountain again to tell God their answer, as if God can't hear, but doesn't matter. <laughs> Then God said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a thick cloud in order that the people may hear when I speak with you and trust you ever after. Then Moses said, look, this is what the people said. And God says, go to the people. Go back down the mountain. So he's up once. He's got to go back down again. Go to the people and tell them to prepare themselves. Now, what did they have to do to prepare themselves? And this is what my mother taught me a long time ago. All right. Take a bath. You're right. Never go to the doctor without checking your clothes. Always take that bath. I said, Mom, how's the doctor going to know what's the matter? Don't worry about it. You don't go into a doctor's office without a bath. So God says, okay. So here you go to the people, warn them to wash their clothes. I didn't invent that. Some of you think I'm inventing this. I'm not inventing any of it. Let them be ready for the third day, for on the third day. Notice the third day again, this third day. Tom, boing, got it. For on the third day, the Lord will come down in the sight of all the people on Sinai. Set bounds around the mountain. Beware of going up the mountain. Moses comes down from the mountain. We're still not at the commandments yet. All right, to the people and warn the people to stay pure, especially stay away from women. Now, the reason I'm not, that's not, it's, it's, it is funny, but it's really not funny. It's, they were very, in those days, very, very concerned about any kind of emissions at night rendered you impure. So they said, look, stay away from sex for a day or so, a couple of days, so you'll be pure for this moment. I'm not making excuses for them, I'm telling you the truth. All right? 
And now it says, Mount Sinai was all in smoke on the third day. So we already missed two days. We don't know what happened in between, right? It was all smoke. It's like encounters. Remember that? When that spaceship comes down in the dark clouds with lights. It's based on Sinai. The mountaintop. It's going to land on top of the mountain. The dark clouds. The noises. All that stuff. Okay? So when morning dawned, Sinai is full of smoke, right? And there's a shofar sounding, the one that you heard here for the Jubilee. And the smoke was like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountains trembled violently. The blare of the shofar grew louder and louder. Moses spoke, God answered him in thunder. What did they say to each other? Doesn't tell us. Doesn't tell us. See how much room there is to create the interpretive narrative? See how much room there is to try to understand what's happening, put ourselves into the story? What would God have commanded? What might Moses have answered? God said, you're going to be the leader. Moses said, what's my contract going to be like, right? Do I get a parsonage? What do I get? All right. Who knows? But whatever it is, there's a conversation going on. And then God calls Moses to the top of the mountains, and Moses went up. Then God says, go back down. I don't know. I, sometimes I think there's a little dementia here. Don't you say that? I mean, God already told him to go down. All right, he says, go down and warn the people not to come up. So Moses has to say to him, the people can't come up. You already told us that. Sounds like a little kid talking to the parent. What do you mean telling me again to clean my room? You already told me. I took care of it. Doesn't matter. And, God, and then so, so after Moses tells God that, God says, go down and come back together with Aaron. But don't, no one else comes up with you. Moses went down to the people and spoke these words. I am the Lord your God who took you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Where was Moses? At the base of the mountain with the people. Now, it's been a problem in biblical interpretation. Everybody wants to put Moses up on the mountain. He'll go back up again. Don't worry. He goes up a number of times. They even have a board meeting on the way up. I'll read it to you. Don't let, I'm telling you the truth. Don't look at me as if I... I'm just telling you what's here because I know not all of you have read it carefully. But the text is just not clear. It's clear that he comes down. Were these words that already were spoken? I don't know. I like to imagine Moses at the bottom of the mountain. He's not above any other Israelite on this one. We all hear the words together. We are all part of a community. Even those we choose to serve us, even those who are prophetic in quality, are always part of the people. See, that's, that's when you know the difference between a comic or comedian 
who has a religious sense and those who don't. Comedians who have a religious sense will always treat people of faith with love, though they'll point out our failings. And those who have something to pick are always doing always. Moses is with the people. To be a religious leader, you've got to love the people. You don't have to like them. But you've got to love them. Because love, and certainly as you get closer to Easter, you're going to hear more and more about that love. But to love them is the issue. Like them? No, I, you may be quoting me to people. I'm not going to say anything more because it may get back. Remember what I told you? What you say here is heard over there. Okay. And I know where over there is. Anyways, the commandments are then given. And I'm not going to argue with you about how to count the commandments. By the way, Jews and Christians don't count the commandments the same way. I, the Lord, am your God, who took the land of Egypt as commandment number one for the Jewish people. You start with thou shalt not which we see as the second one. That's for another time, another place, and for other study. But I want you to know that, right? And then, since I told you that there'll be a meeting, let me, let me just tell you where that is, and then we'll go on to the later part of the story, because I want you to hear at the end what Moses does. So they go through all the stuff here. Then it says in chapter 24, God says to Moses, now come up. You and Aaron, Nadav and Avihu, and the 70 elders, and Moses alone will go all the way up. You come part of the way up. So Moses went and told the people all the commands of the Lord and all the rules, and the people answered, we'll do it. Then it, Moses, it says, then wrote down all the commands of God. We have no idea what that is. We don't know. We don't have a book of the commands separate from this. So what was he writing? We don't know. And what those book, what that book was, was it a book? Was it put on a tablet that was lost with time? We don't know. It's not the fragment, because remember, God's going to write that first set. It doesn't say that. Moses wrote this down. What he wrote down, we don't know. Then Moses and Aaron and 70 elders ascended, and they saw God. You're not supposed to be able to see God. They saw God. God's feet were the likeness of a pavement of sapphire, pure blue. Right? Like the very sky for purity. If God didn't do anything, and being a Jewish group, they ate and drank. You have a meeting. I mean, it's like coming here. I mean, I finish here and we'll go into the other room and, and you're wonderful, hospitable, gracious Wonderful. Dr. Biggs is going to say, you must have something to drink. Got to have some punch. Got to eat. You know, it's like old Mediterranean peoples, and he gets in there somehow. Uh, are always into, you've got to eat. So they actually had a meal. Can you imagine with God right there? They sat down and had their meeting and had a meal. Then Moses goes back up again, and that's when he's there for 40 days and 40 nights. An interesting story, isn't it? And you can work on it because it seems so clear from the story we saw on the screen and what we were told in 
biblical tales that we studied as children in Sunday school that we think we have it. But there are problems here. Anyways, okay. I'm not going to, I'm going to talk tomorrow night about what happens when Moses is up in the mountain, what goes on down below, and how Moses does what for me is almost an unbearable thing. What does he do? He shatters God's tablets. Who gave him permission? They weren't his. They belonged to the people, no matter how bad the people had gotten. Who gave him the right to destroy the first set of tablets? And what happened to that first set? We're going to talk about that tomorrow night, okay? Now let's keep on going with Moses because I know it's getting late. And uh, I try to keep to a semi-clock. We're compromising tonight, okay? Now, Moses still deals with problems all the way through. The people are not easy to be with. There are problems that face him, confront him every step of the way. He continues the complaining, the rebelliousness, And they finally get to the place from which they're going to enter the land, the promised land. Kadesh Barnea, right near the Nabataean city of Ovdad. If you look at an Israeli map, here's where I want you to look. If you look at a map of the state of Israel, okay, I'm not an artist. Okay, but here, Sea of Galilee, Dead Sea, the Negev goes here. This is the Sinai, Egypt, that's all Egypt there, right? Here you have the Gulf of Aqaba down there, and Eilat, the bottom of Israel. Ovdad is here. That's where Kadesh Barnea is. They were within one mile of the Promised Land. Now, we know why they eventually, when they go, they won't go this way. Because the Egyptians had fortifications up there. There were no Philistines yet. The Bible says it's because of the Philistines and God was, knew they weren't prepared for war. There were no Philistines yet. Philistines bother King Saul and they bother uh, King David and that's a couple hundred, almost a couple hundred years later. So then Moses turns, he wants to then go up here. And he sends the spies up here. What happens when the spies come back? Were they favorable or opposed? Well, it's more than one. Two said they could do it, and ten said, no way, Jose. No way you're going to do it. You can't do it. It's mighty. And they were. The Canaanites had mighty fortifications. Look at Chatzor. Chatzor in the far north was a city of 100,000, 200,000 people. You can tell from the excavations. It was a gigantic city with mighty walls. They, they weren't ready to... They couldn't even agree on what to eat, let alone go fight a war. <laughs> so the spies weren't wrong. What the spies were wrong about was the spies said, we can't do it. That's Remember I said to you on Sunday? Do not fear. Do not fear. That's what Easter is about. That's what Passover is about. Even in the midst of being a minority in the world, preaching a doctrine of redemption and salvation, even though you're a minority, do not fear, 
Be of good courage and move forward. The sin of the spies was they saw human power and hadn't learned that God's power triumphs over human power eventually. That was the message of Egypt. And they forgot the storyline. The spies come back. They tell it. The people rebel against Moses. God says they're not going in. This is within a year of leaving. Within a year. And then a group says, no, we're wrong, God, we're going to go up. And that group left, went up, and the Bible tells you they were wiped out by the king of Arad, city right about there, town right about there. Small group went up. And let's guess what happens. God says, I'm going to destroy this people. And one of the most beautiful passages in the entire text, God and Moses have a conversation And Moses prays for God to forgive the people. That's in Numbers 14, if you want to look at it at home, because we don't have time now to do it. God, Moses prays. I mean, these are a people that make... This is what a religious leader is about. That even when the people act in ways which drive you... The word in English is crazy. I like the word in Yiddish better, meshuggah. And you don't know what to do. And you want to go screaming out the door. And God says, I'm, I, and you know what God says to Moses? And this is the moment, you've got to read that Numbers 14. Moses, I'll make you the father of a new people. Now, I know some of my colleagues. I'm talking just about Jewish rabbis, okay? Someone offered them, you know something, we'll start a new congregation. And we'll make it yours. Not, you don't have to worry about boards. You don't have to worry about past presidents. You don't have to worry about old guard. You don't have to worry about people who question your vision. You will be the father of a new people. And, and Moses says, if that's what you do, erase me from the book. That's what a leader is. Even when they've given him Maylock's moments of the worst kind, a religious leader loves his people and is not simply out for his own honor and glory. I've got to keep on reminding myself about that all the time because it's so easy. When I applied to rabbinical school, the part my third child, David, calls the family business, when I, when I applied to rabbinical school, we were required to re- read an essay by the late Rabbi Richard Israel. He said, when you go into a congregation, there are going to be people who love you for no reason at all and people who are opposed to you for no reason at all. And you know who the most dangerous are? The ones who love you for no reason at all. Because you believe them. Look at me. Aren't I something? struggled that my whole life. Because I know when you say nice things, I believe you, but you're being nice. 
And the problem is when you start believing it yourself. That's a struggle. It's in the it's in the very guts. Again, the Jewish word is kishkas. It's in the very internal working. Moses says, "God, you do that." First of all, he says, "God, you know what they're going to say about you in Egypt?" I can relate to that. You know what they're going to say about you in Egypt? This God took them out to kill them in the wilderness. He says, almost like he's talking to a kid, Moses. But then. Moses says, erase me from the book if you do that. I want no part of this anymore. First time he's challenged God that way. And God says, I pardon them as you have requested. When a religious leader asks God to be forgiving and compassionate, that is the mark of greatness. And then God says, but guess what? They're not going into the promised land. This whole generation will die. They are unable to do what needs to be done, which will be to do the following. Go down this way, cross here, come up, and take the land from the one flat, weak spot, which are the plains of Jericho. Flat, no hills. It's an oasis for 10,000 years. And they were always having trouble in Jericho. That's the reason if you go to Jericho, you'll see the first tower we have built for human defense. It's not a big tower. It's not as big as this. I'm just trying to figure it out here. It's probably just a bit more than the final piece of wood in that beautiful, just in the choir law. Just a bit larger than that. You can look down, you see it, and that's all it is. But it's 10,000 years old because Jericho was always under attack. So somehow they, they will enter that. But you've got to be able to then fight and go into the hills and fight and fight. And they weren't going to be able, so they didn't go in. They didn't go in. And then Deuteronomy says, God, the Torah goes on a little bit here. But Deuteronomy says, okay. And it's it's... This is the clue to where what that had begun. It said, and God said to them, camp here. And then the story of the journey begins, it says, the time we have spent at Kadesh, in the book of Deuteronomy, was 38 years. They weren't wandering. They were camped for 38 years so they could see the land of promise but they could not enter it for they lacked moral and spiritual courage. And then it picks up in the last six months. So for a year and a half, the Bible is silent and we are left to try to understand what it must have been like to watch your generation die. What it must have been like for the children to see their parents run up to it, and it would be their task to go in. What was it like for the new Jewish people being born here, the new people of covenant relationship, to know that Miriam would die, and Aaron would die, and then Moses would die? And at the end, Moses goes up on Mount Nebo. You can see at the end of Deuteronomy. And God says, I can't let you in because of what you did, hitting the rock and didn't sanctify my name. 
can't go in. But let you see it. You're going to see the land of promise. That's what they call an Aramaic. That was a language that Jesus spoke, by the way. He didn't speak Hebrew. He read Hebrew, but he spoke Aramaic. In fact, the Lord's Prayer was originally in Aramaic. Our Father, heart in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Right? Okay. And that you can see that in Jewish prayer books. Part of it is the Kaddish. Yit Gadal Shemei Rabbat. It's Aramaic. That was the spoken language of its time. There are people who still, still speak Aramaic now. And... Um, it's a nechemta. A nechemta means consolation. Moses, okay, you were a great leader, now you're going to go up. And you'll see. And it says he went up on top of Nebo, and he saw everything from the far north to the south. Now, I don't know how many of you have been up on what is the, we think is Mount Nebo in Jordan, the country of Jordan, the kingdom of Jordan. <laughs> on a clear day, you can't see much. It's not a very high hill. It's dusty if there's a little bit of wind. Best you see the Jerusalem a few miles away, 30 miles away. It's a little country, Israel. You can't see the far north because of Hermon and the clouds that are covering all of that stuff. You can't see the Negev. I'm telling you, I've been there six or seven times. I've never had one day. Don't, don't, don't trust your travel agent. I've never had one day where I could see what Moses saw. You know why? Because I don't think Moses saw physically. I think Moses was granted a vision of the Israelite people on its land. But as Martin Luther King Jr. died before he could see the dream come true, before he could see, let us say, an African-American president, or he could see greater civil rights, Moses... Moses had to see the vision of what could be. That is also what it takes to be a religious leader. You know, I know for myself that I really don't think the redemption is going to come in my day, the final redemption. It's hard for me to believe, but I work so hard at it so that maybe my children and grandchildren will see it. And you know what my model is? Not that I'm Moses. Far from it. But because of what he did, I am prepared to climb the mountaintop of Nebo and see what might be for my children and grandchildren and their children and generations to come. That's what it means to be a religious leader. And that's the model of Moses.